Good morning. Please stand as you're able for the reading of today's New Testament from the lesson from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. In the first book, Theopolis, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles from whom he had chosen. After suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing up toward heaven. Suddenly, two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much, Michael. And my, 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 what a joy it is to be in worship with you and to see so many of you back uh, together in this fellowship. Uh, I, I don't have words to share the gratitude to God that I feel and to many of you. And it is so good to see so many of our kids who are with us today. Uh, as uh, Casey, you reminded us next week is a big weekend uh, for our youth when we're going to begin uh, a new uh, relaunch of our youth ministry. So much of what we're doing today is relaunching and rebuilding our ministry together. And to see you here today brings great joy to all of us. I, I need to say a word, uh, Casey, to you and uh, to all of our associates. She mentioned last week we have had a rotation of a, a marathon of associates preaching, and you have had a feast of preaching, and today you're back to bread and water. But I just want to say thanks be to God for a marvelous clergy staff who have the gift of communication, who are so faithful in their discipleship and in their collegiality. I'm so grateful to Casey, to Jim, uh, to Alan Black. We even let our district superintendent preach while I was gone, and to Adam uh, and to all of them. And I, I just, would you join me in just giving thanks to God for each of them? And then, and then I, I want to say how thankful I am to be a part of a church where you recognize the, the necessity, I think, 
of sometimes having time apart to just be with God, to reflect, to study, to read. I'm going to publish uh, this week, both in the Facebook and also in an e-note, some of the the books that I was privileged to read. I've been spending a lot of time in the book of Acts, obviously, uh, in the month of July. And, And frankly, after being gone all that time, uh, Casey, I was a little surprised when my key actually fit the door of the church. I was a little surprised that you didn't change the locks, and I'm grateful that you didn't, and I'm grateful uh, to all of you. On January the 2nd, 2022, that's not far from now, I'm going to begin a 40th year in ministry. Now, actually, it would be a 47th year because the COVID year is like dog years for us, Right. It seems like that anyway. I'm going to begin a 40th year in ministry. And while I was away, I was thinking about really about two things. One is how quickly, what a whisper, a breath that life is, how quickly it passes. I feel like in some ways I'm just getting started. It's a 40th year. And the second thing that I realized while I was gone was the unbelievable privilege of being a part of a church uh, with you partnering with you in ministry, especially in what I think is the most challenging and most opportune moment in the history of the planet, to be with you. What a privilege. And then finally, I want to say something in response, Casey, to what you mentioned last week. Uh, We have come to an agreement in our family on a name for me when our grandchild arrives Uh, My children, if you don't know, have always referred to me as Da. They didn't call me Dad, they called me Da. And so uh, it's been mandated by my children that the name to be given me when the child is born is Papa Da. And so that's more important than Davis or Reverend Chapel or Dr. Chapel. Papa Da, you have my permission. Uh, We're still working on Sherry, however, and we're open to ideas. Uh, You'll be glad to know the winner of her name will get a rebate on your tithe. But anyway, that's another, that's another time. It's good, it's good to be home. So we're starting a new series in kind of this relaunch mode that we're in today on the book of Acts called Empowered. I've been living in the book of Acts. I've read this book in July from four different translations. I've combed through the commentaries. I want to share a few things about it before we get into it that I think maybe you already know, but that are important to know when you dig into the book of Acts. And the first thing is this, the author. It was written by a Greek physician, a Gentile doctor whose name in the Latin is Lucas. You know him as Luke, which means light like light to the world. He writes the book of Acts as a sequel, of course, to his gospel. And by the way, his gospel, the gospel of Luke, is the only gospel of the four that is composed by a non-Jew, which is interesting. He's a Gentile. What that means is between Luke and Acts that one quarter or 25% of the New Testament is written from the ink of one pen by a doctor whose name was Luke, a traveling companion and caretaker to the apostle Paul. In fact, he was likely with Paul in Rome at the time of his death, at the time of his execution. It's always interested to me that we refer to this book as the Acts of the Apostles, and I think that's a misnomer. This book should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. The Holy Spirit is the main 
character, the leading actor in the story of the church. And by the way, if you read through 28 chapters, the 28 chapters, you'll notice that the book of Acts has no ending. And that's by design. Because Acts 29 is now being scripted in you. The Holy Spirit is still writing the history of the church through us. We too are empowered by the Spirit of God. Now I wanna say as we begin, I am struck by the fact that we have just come through and are still experiencing to some degree because of the variant called Delta, a season in which many of us, let's be frank about it, have felt completely disempowered. Many of you have shared with me, I have shared with many of you this feeling during a pandemic of, of just disillusionment, of dissatisfaction, of disappointment. In our institutions, we, we kind of live in a culture of anti-institutionalism where you're darned if you do and darned if you don't. It, it's been kind of a, a feeling of being disempowered. And so many of us have become nostalgic. We long for the pre-COVID days. And that's a natural thing. If that's been you, if you've been there, if you feel that today, that's a natural thing. That's a wistful thing. That's a human thing. That's a, a melancholic thing. And we do this historically, don't we? I do it with 9-11. Do you remember the pre-Twin Towers day? Do you remember the time before Homeland Security? Do you remember the time you used to go with your relatives to the airport and walk them all the way to the gate? through the gate and maybe onto the steps of the plane. There's a nostalgia about that. We do the same thing historically. Life before Watergate. Life before Vietnam, if we could just get back. Life before the assassinations. Life before the Holocaust. Life before Egypt in the Old Testament. Life before Babylon. We do it personally. I do it life before the stroke. Life before the divorce. If we could just get back to life before the malignancy, before the disability, the addiction, the accident. If we could just go back. You know the feeling. Some unforeseen predicament threatens life as we have known it and we feel disempowered. Welcome to the church. The disciples knew the feeling. In fact, they had a name for it, Golgotha. The death of their teacher, the death of their rabbi was so disorienting if we could just go back to life before Good Friday. But you can't. You can't go back. I was thinking the other day how interesting it is to me that when Moses, you remember this in the book of Exodus, when Moses had his burning bush experience, you remember he asked the question, what is your name? And a voice spoke from the bush and said, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. And the voice never said, I was who I was. You can't go back. The disciples knew the feeling, but they stuck together. 
That's the biggest miracle to me in the early church in the book of Acts. The disciples who were so disillusioned, so disappointed, so disenfranchised, so disempowered, they didn't leave the fellowship. They hung on to their relationships. I I was reading a book while I was gone. This is a must read. It's not a Christian book. It's written by an investigative journalist named Amanda Ripley, who's written a book called High Conflict, H-I-G-H, High Conflict, in which she diagnoses the culture that we live in. And she makes this comment. Listen to this. Relationships change us way more readily than the facts. Boy, is that ever true? Relationships. When somebody today says, trust the science, I say, who's the scientist? Because I want a relationship with my doctor. You can go to a doctor and get four different opinions and all of them have truth. But I want to know who my doctor is. I want a relationship. I don't just want information. I want a relationship. They stuck together. It's a miracle. Now you would think that that kind of grief might splinter the band But haven't we all discovered that shared suffering has a way of bonding the band? And so the preface of the book of Acts, according to Luke, begins with this tiny flock. They're still together. There's a roster of who's there that includes 11 of the original 12, plus the mother of Jesus, whose name was Mary, and the brothers of Jesus, 120, who are still together. They're still praying They're still hoping, they're still trusting, they're still combing through the scriptures. And the last chapter in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, before the book of Acts, says that the tomb was empty. Now that's the glue that held them together. Jesus was raised up. We're told by the scriptures that he appeared to the women, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the 12, and to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, says Paul. And I think sometimes we, we don't talk about resurrection as much as we should. We sometimes act in our own culture as though all that matters is the here and now, but the empty tomb is the game changer. The resurrection of Jesus is the glue that held this band together. In fact, we've affirmed it in our creed for hundreds of years. We did it this morning. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. We believe that. That's our glue. In fact, I think it was Paul who said, if for this life only we have hoped, we're to be pitied more than most. Your vision of the future of God changes the here and now to where it resembles the there and then. He was raised. Luke says he walked with them, he talked with them, he ate with them, he broke open the scriptures to them, and the book of Acts begins where Luke ends. In fact, here's the first verse. In my first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Make a note of that, do and teach. Until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. I want you to notice that I've italicized the words do 
and teach. This is very important in the preface. The accent of Dr. Luke is not first of all on teaching, although that is critical. What's it on? It's on doing. What that says to us is it's not just doctrine that matters, although that's critical, it's practice. In other words, it's not just orthodoxy, it's orthopraxy. The book of Acts is not a book of policies, it is a book of acts, action. While I was away, I was reading a book by Richard Rohr, who's a Catholic, he's a Franciscan, and he's written a book called Silent Compassion. This is a brief book, I think it's a must read for our culture, for our day. In that book, he writes these words. Listen carefully. It is strange to me that Christianity, the religion that believes the word became flesh, has become so wordy. Much of our history includes fighting about words demeaning words, using words in different ways, defining words, defending words. He says we have actually reversed the incarnational process of God and made the flesh become word again, but no longer the living word. In short, says Rohr, we have become excarnational. We have disembodied the faith rather than incarnational preferring theory over practice. It's interesting to me that when you read through the preaching in the book of Acts by Peter and Paul and Stephen and others, the question evoked by their witness is not what should we think, it's what should we do. Because discipleship is about doing and teaching. That's why Acts 10, 38, one of the themes of Acts is Jesus went about doing good. Would to God that the same might be said of us, not just a good pastor, a preacher, a good doer. What would it look like for you to go about doing good? You remember the conclusion of Jesus' great sermon, Sermon on the Mount? He said something, it's very intriguing. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, who gets the right words, will enter the kingdom, but he or she who does the will of my Father. It's about doing. I want you to also notice in that first verse how Luke says, in my first book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In other words, He's not finished yet. In other words, Jesus is still at work. Jesus is still embodying himself in you and in me by the power of the Spirit. And yet, at least in this preface, the disciples like us are slow learners. You see their confusion in verse 6 by their question, Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom of God? They're still thinking politics. They're still thinking life pre-Golgotha, pre-exile, pre-Roman occupation. In other words, Lord, Lord, will you take out the Roman troops now so that we can get our national mojo back? But Jesus is not interested in nation building. 
Jesus is not primarily interested in restoring, just in restoring Israel. He wants to reconcile all of creation, the entire planet. He wants a witness. He doesn't want a politician necessarily. He wants a witness. And then he says, I'm going to empower you by my spirit to bear witness. And the disciples are thinking, oh, this is great. Just tell us what to do. Give us a master plan and we'll take off. And Jesus says, okay, ready, set, wait. Oh, no, anything but that. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Give me a plan. Give me an agenda. I want you to wait. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of my father. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm troubled by that because it seems like to me that Jesus could come up with something a little bit more engaging, especially for us high-tech, impatient moderns who live in the age of instant everything. I want it now. I want it yesterday. And he says, you have to wait. What does that mean? Waiting implies that the thing that needs doing is beyond my ability to do solely by my own effort. Something more is needed. And so we wait. And while they were waiting, they prayed. Casey's right on target when she said one of the most important things that we do as a body is to pray. Not to get out our laundry list of God, here's what you need to do. But Lord, what, what would you have me? What is your will for me to do for us? And they pray. Barbara Brown Taylor once said, our waiting is not nothing it is something, it is a very big something because people tend to be shaped by whatever it is that we are waiting for. Anybody like country music? I love country music, Brad Paisley. I don't think he wrote a song, but I think he performed a song a few years called Waiting on a Woman. I love that, Waiting on a Woman. And I'm sure it's about his wife, I think her name is Kim about always waiting and things are running late and waiting on a woman. And, and the theme of that song really is that love is willing to wait. I don't mind waiting when I love. I don't have to have it yesterday when I love. Waiting. Our daughter and son-in-law had a gender reveal while we were gone, it was July the 3rd, she's expecting, and, and we had the gender reveal at Cool Race Stadium in Buford, Georgia, which is the home of the AAA farm team of the Atlanta Braves. My, uh, my son-in-law's father is the groundskeeper for this team, and so we went out there. There were just about 40 of us. We had the stadium to ourselves, and my daughter pitched the ball to Zach, and he took a home run cut, and this is what happened. The ball exploded and turned blue. They already have a name, Crosby Rivers. And now we're just waiting. It'll be late November, early December, Lord willing. And I have noticed 
Melissa, that while she's waiting to be a mom, she's becoming mommified already. She's huge. <laughs> this little girl that weighed 108 pounds, she's enlarged in her waiting and by what she's waiting for. And so are we. I think this is the origin of that phrase, pregnant pause, in this text. Those 40 days between resurrection and ascension were in essence a pregnant pause through which the Holy Spirit of God is about to ignite a birth, about to explode into the church, and followers who have fallen will become apostles to be sent. It's a pregnant pause. Good things come to those who wait. Isaiah understood that. We read that passage yesterday at, at a funeral. He gives power to the faint and he strengthens the disempowered. Even youth will faint and be weary and the young will fall exhausted, but those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, mount up like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And it happened to the disciples just as Jesus promised. In fact, in Luke's gospel, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but there's coming one after me whose sandals I'm unworthy to unlace and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he did and he does and he will. And they're empowered to be bold in their faith, but not by going back. You can't go back pre-Golgotha but you can go forward post-Easter. Going forward, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. To Jerusalem, that's restoring Israel. To Judea, to Samaria, the places you don't want to go. And to the utter ends of the earth. Friends, Mr. Wesley was right. This world is our parish. This world is our congregation. Don't ever get stuck into thinking that God only shows up in these four walls or whatever box we put him in. God's spirit is so powerful, it encompasses the world. One last thing. I mentioned Barbara Brown Taylor. She is a teacher at Piedmont University where our son-in-law is now uh, on staff. This is in Demarest, Georgia, uh, which I'm sure all of you know where that is. It's somewhere between Clarksville and Clayton, and that now you understand. It's in a little hole in the wall up in the North Georgia mountains, and this woman who, Episcopal priest, uh, religion teacher, just a marvelous, I think she's the Flannery O'Connor of our time, has written a book called Leaving Church. She confesses in the last chapter that it was in her 20th year of, of pastoral ministry that she had a faith crisis. She described it as an unwillingness 
to fall. On the one hand, she says, this is perfectly normal. I don't know anyone, she says, who likes to fall. But on the other hand, this reluctance to fall signals mistrust of the central truth of the gospel. And it's simply this. Life springs from death. Not only at the end of life, but also in the many little deaths that we suffer along the way. She writes that when everything you count on for protection has failed, the divine presence does not fail. The hands are still there, not just to rescue, not always to intervene, but the hands are there promising only to hold you no matter how far you fall. Paul says the same thing to the Corinthians. My grace is sufficient for you, says the Lord, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So I boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties, pandemics. For when I am weak then I'm strong. Even when you feel disempowered, even when you're disenfranchised, even when life is discombobulated, the promise of God is still good. His power comes in the waiting as we stick together, trusting, hoping, loving, praying, not going back to pre-Good Friday, but in going forward to post-Pentecost. And I don't know, but I'm just guessing (laughs) that the biggest miracle of all is not that the disciples stuck together, nor that they stuck with Jesus. The biggest miracle is that Jesus stuck with them. And he does with you and with me and with us. And that, my friends, is the source of our power. May it be so. In Jesus' name.